So welcome to the final session of how to be better followers of Jesus during this election season. So this is part three. Um, and today we have Pastor Helen and Pastor Colleen with us um, because we believe the Christian community has a lot to offer us for this time and how to navigate this election faithfully. And we're just really thankful to have their voices um, of wisdom to bear on this topic. So I, for one, am very excited to hear what they have to say. Uh, and just a quick thing to note, we'll talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll have a time of Q&A. But during the conversation, we'll ask that you remain muted. Um, and then what we'll do is I'll go ahead and pray to get our time started and then the conversation will begin. So please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your Lordship in our lives, for leading and guiding us through the storms and trials we face. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and thus want our hearts, minds, bodies, communal life, and even our political participation to be submitted to you. Where we have held on to hate, please sow forgiveness. Where we have been blind to truth, give us new insight. Where we have forgotten to care for the most vulnerable, lead us into a new solidarity. And where we have made idols out of men and women, remind us of your power displayed on the cross. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon the United States and upon all nations struggling to, nav to navigate these perilous times. Please show us how to live faithfully in your kingdom above all else. Amen. Amen. Um, so I'm going to kind of toggle back and forth between Helen and Colleen, but we're going to start with Helen. So as many of you know, Helen is a church historian and a professor of church history at Westmont. And Helen, feel free to give any more background that you would like. But because you are a church historian, um, I'm wondering what lessons you think church history has for Christians as it relates to politics um, and as it relates to our basically navigating the election uh, or this season today. Um, so yeah, what does church history have to teach us? Thank you, Nikki. Uh, thank you. Hello, everyone. Good to see you all. Yeah. So I'm a church historian uh, teaching uh, that subject at Westmont uh, for the last 16 years. And several lessons from the church history uh, as we think about uh, the relationship between Christianity and politics. So first lesson I would say is that we go way back to the early Christian sort of a time. The first three centuries of uh, Christianity um, under the Roman Empire, so when they were living under the threat and the reality of the persecutions by the Roman Empire, they were the first group, early Christians were the first group of people in the ancient world to call for the separation of church and state. So uh, during the time, every Roman subject had to worship the Roman traditional gods and the emperor, uh, so emperor worship, but there was no separation of religion and politics basically in any ancient society all the way up to modern times. Actually, the United States is the first country in the world 
that actually has the constitution based upon the separation of church and state. So once again, the lesson is the early Christians called for the religious freedom based upon the notion of separation of church and state, distinguishing the worship of the one true God from the veneration or the respect for the emperor. So that's the first lesson uh, I want to say. But the second lesson is what happens afterwards. So once the Emperor Constantine, you might have heard of him, right? The Emperor Constantine in early fourth century, once he legalized Christianity and joined, rejoined now uh, politics with Christianity in the early fourth century. And once he pursued a very pro-Christian policies, giving lots of money and power to the Christian churches and the bishops. The church then faced the government intervention in church affairs in a major way. And the church also faced the problem of growing worldliness of the church through nominalism and syncretism. So Christianity became a fad, you know, in the fourth century. Christianity became a tool to advance Yuan's careers. And the church closely worked with the state to persecute the religious minorities, the very state that Christianity once had had, right? So what happens is that by the end of the fourth century, uh, when the emperor Theodosius I made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity had been transformed from having been a persecuted minority now to the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. And in that process, what happened is that church became twined with the imperial government. Yeah. So the lesson here is this, that the church is co-mingling with the empire, the church is co-mingling with the earthly politics of the empire, resulted in the worldliness of the church. Why? Because the power corrupts. Um, when the church gets intertwined with the earthly power, it inevitably changes the nature of the church for the worse, rather than it changes the nature of the state for the better. Because the corrupting, corrupting nature of the political power. Um, so uh, I have just two more lessons. Is that okay for me to go on? Or yeah. Yeah. No, these are really great. Please go on. Okay. So the third lesson is this. Um, now the Christianization of the Roman Empire also resulted in the century-long practices of the state church model in Europe. Some of you may know that. So in the realm of the state churches, Christianity basically preserved the status quo of the society. Yeah. The, in England, we have the Anglican church remaining uh, basically the ally of the state. And also in uh, Protestant churches, for the German states. So these are some examples of the state church models. So the church simply became 
the arm of the state. So the extreme example of that, the German in the Third Reich. Yeah. So Lutheran Church really lost the prophetic voice when basically it followed the state policy, that of Hitler. So think about it. What's the status of Christianity now in Europe today? Now, you, some of you, I mean, probably most of you actually know that Europe as the continent where the state church still persists is largely secular, right? Uh, even actually sometimes outright anti-Christian sometimes, right? So the, the mood of a quote, Christian sort of a country, Ireland, it's way below 30%, the population of Christianity. So here the lesson is this, the state church model, which is the product of the alliance of the church and state, cannot sustain itself. It cannot have the prophetic voice because it is faith is forced there. The faith is government dependent rather than voluntary. But the Christian sort of faith is, it cannot be coerced, right? So it cannot be coerced. So I want to contrast the state church model with the American model of disestablishment. Disestablishment. So this establishment is in the First Amendment to the Constitution, right? Basically, it says the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So this first commandment okay, to the constitution meant that there would be no established or national church. And this also meant that there will be no national or state laws requiring church attendance, providing support for clergy and church, or censoring heretical or radical ideas such as deism. Right? Now, the issue is this, the church had to stand on its own for the first time in history. The big question is, would it succeed? Would it succeed? Now, what's the answer? I think you already know the answer, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> actually it succeeded, it not only actually barely survived, actually thrived under sort of a disestablishment. So people actually were very concerned during this time, 17, like uh, 80s and 90s, right, 1800s on. So many politically active evangelicals a tendency to look to the, to promote religion. They thought the piety had to be promoted by the law. But the very famous preacher, Lyman Beecher, have you heard of him? Lyman Beecher, who is the, uh, the brother of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, yeah, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cat, right? So he was... He's a very prominent sort of a preacher in New England. He said, quote, this establishment turned out to be the best thing ever for the churches because it caught the churches loose from on the state support. 
is through them wholly on own resources and on the on their God. Uh, so through this establishment, the church finally realized that they had to get hair, they have to work, <laughs> they had to actually get their hands dirty and, and hustle. Finally, actually, they were going out and evangelizing and sharing gospels, right? Um, so when they recognized this, things started to change. So let me just say that what was the major sort of a change in that sort of um, time? So for example, the lead beach and others, evangelicals organized a source of voluntary associations for evangelization and for social and political reform. They formed the groups to help end poverty, end uh, slavery, to teach reading and writings to the poor, and to prevent alcohol abuse. Still others promoted prison reform and voluntary Sabbath keeping and so on. So this multitude of voluntary associations, they're the ones who transformed American society in a way that few government programs ever could. So you can clearly see the contrast between, so still, you know, the 70% of the American adults still respond according to Pew Research, uh, Pew Research uh, survey that they are still Christians. Now, I mean, there are lots of questions how they actually do that, uh, survey that, but still the contrast is that United States, because of the voluntary nature of faith, it has been thriving and changing the society along with it. Wow, Helen, that's super helpful and really powerful to think about um, the church's prophetic voice um, and the separation of church and state like preserves that prophetic voice and then also the power of voluntary associations and what we can do without the coercive power of the state but with the power of God. That's amazing. I wish that we all, I don't know, could take another class from you to learn more. Um, that's very, very helpful for this time. Thank you, Helen. And so we also have Pastor Colleen with us. Um, and I'm just really excited to hear from you, Colleen, because you care about the church. You have hope for the church. Um, you love your flock. You love your congregation. And so what is your hope for the church in this time? Uh, would love to hear that. Well, thank you so much uh, for yeah inviting me to come and be here. And um, I also want to thank Nikki for putting this series together. I just have loved uh, Dr. Covington and Dr. Luigio, and uh, just I think it's been very rich and timely. And so, Pastor Nikki, thank you so much for doing that. So my hope for the church in this time is that the church would remember who we are. And so, um, you know, nothing that I'm going to say today is really going to, you know, be earth shattering or new. It's going to be just reminders for us. But I want to start by talking a little bit about my parents for a second. Uh, both were believers in Christ and um, they were, uh, one of them was a Republican and one of them was a Democrat. And the great thing about that is that that didn't divide them, but they would laugh about it and it allowed them to talk about issues without rancor and to get to hear 
about things from a different perspective. The funny thing to me as their child was that the older they got, the more they voted the opposite way from their party affiliation. And so they still canceled that one another's vote and it was still a joke, but it was just kind of funny. But I remember when I would have a conversation with my dad about, um, in the 80s, of course, communism was a big thing. So we were talking about all different kinds of, you know, politics and regimes and stuff like that. And when voting time would come along, my dad took me, even as a young child, they would have a little uh, voting thing at the elementary school, you know, where you the child would get to like pretend like they were voting. And there was always a Hurley on there. And I was so excited because I was like, I would always vote for the Hurley just because that was my name. But anyway, I digress. And so I remember my dad talking to me and telling me that, um, he really felt that uh, having a strong, like only one party affiliation and blindly following a candidate or a party um, was a, not a good idea. That we should always think for ourselves and that we should always take time to do research and vote for the candidate that um, on the issues in an independent kind of way. And I, I really have taken that to heart and that's wise counsel. And I've always tried to live that way. Now, I talk about all of this because I want to remind us as Christians that no political party fits who we are. And that's an important thing for us to always remember because we're so polarized right now as a nation politically, um, especially with Republican and Democrat. And so as Free Methodists, we believe in following kingdom principles. That's just not, not a free Methodist thing. That's a church thing. But I want to talk about a few kingdom principles that we as free Methodists are committed to. Um, as we hear these different commitments, you might hear them as a political person, as a person who's a Republican or a Democrat. Um, but I want to highlight them because uh, it shows what it is that I'm trying to talk about is my hope for the church. So First of all, we are solidly pro-life from birth until death. And life is from the Lord and is not ours to take. Um, we lean into a commitment also to care for the orphan and the refugee and the immigrant and the incarcerated and the oppressed and the poor. We believe that we are to be good stewards of the finances that God has given us, that we should be fiscally responsible, that the money that we have and the resources we have doesn't belong to us, but it belongs to the Lord. And we're not to live out of a love for money, um, but out of uh, being good stewards. We believe that we have an obligation to care for the earth and to pay attention to our actions and to the effects uh, that humanity has on the planet that we um, have to share uh, and also preserve our planet for future generations. Um, we believe that the character of a person being elected matters, that we have a commitment to holiness. So are they people of integrity? Are they respectful? Are they dishonest? Are they proud? But we also believe that it's important that the person being elected should stand for what it is that we think God would want accomplished. And so they should uh, uphold ideals that matter to the Lord. So now you see the problem that we have. Because in a two-party system, we have no candidate fits all those things, and we shouldn't expect them to. And then there's further difficulty um, in the church. The church, uh, when one group uh, who believes an issue that is steeped in a kingdom principle or value is more important than other issues. And they think that their Christian brothers or sisters um, 
who don't believe that too are wrong and need to agree with them and vote the exact same way. I've heard pastors from the pulpit say that God is from a certain political party. I've heard so many other Christian leaders lament one political platform over the other. But as Christians, we have to transcend that mindset. We're in Philippians right now. Tomorrow, we're talking about how our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth. God lives in truth, and truth is found in all platforms. And it's good for us to know what we believe and to seek the Lord, not just in voting time, as Helen has said, but in all of the times. And when we make a hierarchy of what is most important and expect other people to think that exact same way, as if God only agrees with us, as if we're only right, then that's a problem. And in this country, we have the freedom to exercise as voting our conscience. So, of course, as Christians, we have friends who are Republican and Democrat and Independent and Libertarian and Green Party, and all of them are committed, growing. I mean, I have friends who are committed, growing believers in Christ who happen to see things differently and happen to believe in different ways of governing. And so I just think that when we get to this time, the, you know, the media and the voices and the time and family and the social media, you know, make us uh, feel like we have to polarize, but there are so many different ways of governing and the gospel is not partisan. And when we make it that way, we build walls with one another and it bifurcates the truth that Christ came to bring. And when we tear one another apart at the dinner table or on social media and hold on to our beliefs in such a way that we're not separated from them, that we're not differentiated from them, that we can't listen to one another or make allowance for people to think differently, um, then we are missing the love of Jesus. Because truly, the love of Jesus transcends everything that we believe. And as free Methodists, we really lean into that. We, we uphold truth and we uphold love, but we love no matter what, even if we disagree with people. And so we should never make someone wrong because we think a candidate is so awful and someone's going to vote for that person or because the issue that we care about the most um, is God not being honored. We should talk about those things and we should have dialogue about those things. And at the end of the day, we should love one another. And that's, I think, why it's so important that we always recognize God as the true sovereign we have in life. Because Christians live and have lived under every kind of political government and regime possible. We are fortunate to live um, in a country that has freedom and where we have choice, um, that we don't live under an oppressive uh, ruler, uh, that we are able to um, vote. But we also need to recognize that God isn't American that he loves this country and he loves it very, very much, but he also loves Nigeria and Brazil and Syria and China and all of the nations of the world. And that he walks with people through every different kind of imaginable kind of leader and will continue to do so. So I guess, you know, as your pastor, I just want the church to know that we are more than how we vote and that God cares about our heart and wants us to live not just in love, but in unity with our brothers and sisters, and also living in a, a way that where we're doing the things that he wants us to do, and that that's more important to him than anything. Preach it, sister. Thank you. That's uh, really amazing and um, really instructive for us. Part of what you were saying reminds me of a book that I was reading called Compassion and Conviction. Mm -hmm. um, and the title kind of 
speaks to what you were saying that as Christians, we can have both com- both compassion and conviction. And also in, in the same book, they talked about how if you believe everything that one political party believes, then that's kind of problematic as a Christian because we shouldn't be so aligned with this party or so aligned with another party that we then can't recognize that there are truths in all different parties, um, political parties. Um, and so thank you, Colleen. This is, again, just really, really helpful. And your last point will help me in my question that I'm going to pose to Helen, where you talk about God is not just a God of the United States. That's obvious, but sometimes we need to, we need to say that um, God loves all nations equally. And so Helen, moving on to you, in your class, we talked about the kingdom of God as a borderless kingdom, as a kingdom without borders, especially because Christianity is exploding in the global south and just thriving there. Um, And I think that the fact that we live in a borderless kingdom of God helps us reframe um, our nation, helps us reframe this election. So could you could you help us start the process of reframing that? Yeah. Thank you, Nikki. That's a great question. Uh, so in this book called Christianity Rediscovered, by the way, this is a great book by Vincent Donovan, a uh, Catholic sort of missionary to Maasai land in Tanzania in the 70s. He, Vincent Donovan, the author, was trying to explain um, the God, the Almighty, the universal God to the Maasai people. And he realized that the, in Maasai concept, there was a God, but that God is always a tribal God, the God who actually fights for the Maasai against their rival tribes and who actually prospers them only the Maasai people, but not the other ones. So uh, as he was trying to explain this, the whole and the God of the universe, God, the high God, who is beyond our borders and tribal sort of groups, uh, this Maasai elder actually asked Vincent Donovan, then have your people found that high God? Yeah. Now, Vincent actually Donovan tried to answer that question, and but he realized that when he thought about the American Christianity, uh, we act as the uh, we American Christians and other sort of uh, Christians as well. We act as though our God is only a tribal God, God of American tribe, uh, rather than the God of the whole world, the universe. Right. So if we really believe that the Christian God is God Almighty over all nations, uh, where every sort of people groups and tongue will praise God's name, then we would have to really kind of reconsider the, what the American sort of a foreign policy, for example, uh, uh, is uh, like. Think about the foreign policy in the Middle East foreign policy in Africa, foreign policy in Asia and Europe, and how about immigration policies, uh, and how about environmental policies, right, where everyone can actually, uh, uh, can flourish together 
rather than just the America first. So I think uh, we, uh, I think there is a real challenge. I know this is really difficult because uh, I mean, we all like to be patriotic uh, and so on. But I mean, later maybe Pastor Colleen will talk about the difference between nationalism and patriotism. But um, uh, we would have to promote and support the kind of policy, including the economic and trade policies that is for the, uh, the other countries as much as possible than just the United States. So uh, I think that is the part of the challenge that we all have, and we should really prayerfully consider, even actually we think about the election, who, which uh, the, you know, uh, who actually has the best policy. We have to think about actually the danger of protectionism, right? Um, so, uh, so we should really consider all those issues in our probably voting as well. Yeah, Helen, that, those are challenging concepts to think about that our God is not a tribal God. Um, and what does that mean for how we vote? But then even as you were talking about, it doesn't just come down to what we want our government to do, but how do we want to live our lives um, as citizens of a global kingdom? Um, and what do we want to do with our money? What do we want to do with our actions? Um, recognizing that our God is not a tribal God. Uh, challenging, challenging words. Thank you, Helen. And so we're going to switch back to Pastor Colleen. Um, and so we, or I asked you what was your hope for the church in this time? And uh, now I wanna transition more specifically to what hope do you have in voting during this time? Um, yeah, what is the hope we have when we vote? And I believe you're on mute, sorry about that. Okay, I thought you had all the power, Nikki. I thought you had all the power to unmute me. Sorry about that. I voted for you to do that, Nikki. I don't know why you didn't do that. Okay, so um, I want to talk a little bit about my aunt. Um, I had an aunt whom I just, I loved her so much. She passed away a few years ago. She was raised in the church and uh, became an avowed atheist. And so we used to have some really interesting conversations about society and politics and uh and what was wrong with the world. And she could not figure out, sincerely could not figure out what was going on in the world and um, why no matter how hard we tried and how smart humans were, um, that we couldn't get better. And she couldn't understand why there were still wars and corrupt politicians and brutal atrocities everywhere. And, and she really thought about this and really um, took time with it and read a lot and all that stuff. And she kind of came down to the fact that she believed that it all came down to education. That if people had more understanding that they would be better people. Now, I tell you this um, because she and I disagreed about this. Um, I highly value education and I you know, clearly uh, value that, but I don't think that education is going to cure societal ills. I think only Jesus is gonna do that. So, um, I just want to analogize that to voting a little bit um, because I think that sometimes we put all of our eggs in that basket and um, think that um, 
we, but we can't put our hope in uh, broken un individuals and unjust systems to make a better world. Does voting matter? Absolutely. Um, does doing our research and talking with a bunch of different people about issues and wrestling with the Lord about how to get, cast our ballot help? Without a doubt, absolutely. But as Christians, we know that there's a bigger picture, that there's a whole globe of people who are um, in a vast number of contexts who are working hard, just like we are, to make the world a better place. That when we're done voting, we go back, as Helen said, to live out the purpose that uh, God has given to us. And sometimes uh, we're going to cheer when a candidate won, and sometimes we're going to be greatly disappointed. And I really loved what Brian talked about last week when he talked about the common good. And when he talked about how as Christians, that really needs to be our focus, that when we vote, that we don't just vote for what we want and our ideas, but that we look, um, especially locally, um, we look at what um, needs to be done for the common good of all the people and not just for us. Um, and we as Americans, you know, we, we've, we've decided that we're going to live with the bonds and the propositions and the laws and the candidates that are chosen, um, but, but that we also then work hard in our communities to bring about the things that Christ um, wants us to live for, which is uh, lifting up the hungry and the poor and the orphan and the oppressed and the widow and the refugee and the outcast and the foreigner and the marginalized. That's why Christ came. That's why he said the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And so I think that we have to be really careful that we don't just put all of our eggs in that basket. I mean, look at the regime that Jesus was born into. You know, Rome was this great grand place, but it was also brutal. And it was also really, you know, a, a place of hierarchy. And ultimately, you know, the political system is part of what caused him to die. And so we have to be really careful, I think, as Christians, when we when we put our hope in those things. I think that what Helen said is absolutely true, that Christians um, made education so much more possible in the world. It, Christianity helped bring it into slavery and a revival into all different kinds of societies where they decided where freedom and helping people was more important um, to bring unjust systems to bear. So I think that, that you know, we, we do our best, we cast our ballot, and then we continue to work um, about what it is that God wants us to do. And there are times, of course, that we advocate and we protest and we stand up for what is right and we utilize our context and our system in a way that is, is good and we vote for those kinds of things. But um, but we, and we also don't want to lose our voice. I hear Christians sometimes saying, well, I can't vote, especially when it comes to the national election. I can't vote for either candidate, so I'm not going to vote at all. And I think that we have to be very careful when, when we, that's a kind of a dangerous kind of ground for us too, right? That we don't want to give away our vote. Um, if you need to write in a candidate or, or whatever, that's fine. But I also think that we also don't pay enough attention to local stuff. That sometimes the, the, you know, the bigger picture of the presidency is so important uh, to our mindset and to our world. But the things that are going on locally, the judges that we elect, the representatives and the people who represent our county and our city, so, so, so important. And so um, I just think that as Christians, we've made great, great strides and we need to look and see where in our community and where in our society we need to continue to do that because we can't just vote and say, okay, well, I did my job. 
like the next day, right? November 5th or whatever, we get up and we look at the world and we say, okay, well, Jesus, how is it that you want us to make this a better, a better place? And, um, you know, I think that we need to keep working for the kingdom. The political process is one great avenue, but it's not the only one. And I just don't want us to make it more important than the other avenues that God has given us. Wonder, yeah, thank you, Colleen. And it reminds me a little bit of what we talked about with Brian, that oftentimes national elections um, gain our attention because they're all about entertainment. Um, and as Americans or just as people, we like entertainment. And oftentimes local politics are maybe more boring or less entertaining and they require more thoughtfulness and more research. And um, so that's really, really important to emphasize. Um, so I'm wondering, Colleen or Helen, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with, with our church, with the congregation before we move into a time of Q&A? Could I just kind of piggyback on what Colleen said about uh, the important role of politics, but also has a limited role? Is that okay, Nikki? Sure, and Colleen. Thank you. So I want to share uh, what Augustine, St. Augustine actually talked about uh, politics. Now, um, Augustine is, uh, uh, I mean, famous Christian theologian in the early fifth century uh, under the Roman Empire. And he believed that the human beings, human race is permanently divided into two mutually exclusive classes. Uh, who, even though they were related, still remain separated by the unbridgeable gulf. Now, these two groups constitute, on Augustine's metaphor, the two cities, the city of God and the city of human, the earthly city. So the citizens of these people, uh, these actually uh, uh, citizens of God and citizens of human city, are determined by the quality of their inhabitants' respective loves. So the city of God consists of all those people who orient their love and reason toward the highest good, that is a communion with God. And the citizens of uh, uh, the uh, city of earth, uh, the earthly city, on the other hand, consists of all those whose love uh, is exclusively directed toward the temporal order those who pursue temporal goods as the ends in themselves. So these two groups now commingled here on earth, more or less overtly indistinguishable in this life, will be identified and assigned to their respective final destinations, uh, the heaven, and, heaven or hell on the judgment day. So until then, they abide together in the temporal community, in the earthly citizenry, fully at home, and the citizenry of God as strangers and pilgrims in a strange land. Now, my point here is this, the citizens of God and the citizens of human do have certain goods in common, right? Because all require the necessities of this life and at least some measure of temporal peace, right? So Augustine tells us, quote, the peace is a good so great that even in this earthly and mortal life, there is no word we hear with such pleasure 
nothing we more strongly desire or enjoy more thoroughly when it comes, end of quote. So the citizens of the earthly city desire peace in order to gratify their selfish desires and re realize their material goals because even they recognize that the lawlessness, anarchy, and perpetual violence will preclude the fulfillment of their aim. And the citizens of God also require earthly peace and security against violence because they cannot pursue their love of God without a certain degree of temporal order and security. Now, because both groups share a common interest in securing the earthly peace and human justice, they can agree on the need for the government and the law. This is the earthly politics. So participating in building the earthly, earthly peace through politics is helpful and even necessary, according to Augustine. The citizens of God, the uh, heavenly city, should use earthly peace in order to enjoy God, but not the other way around. They cannot use God in order to enjoy earthly peace because that's only temporary. Yeah. But they should know, people, the Christians actually should know the limit of the earthly peace through politics because politics always involve conflict and coercion. And people build earthly city, earthly peace around their desires, self-love. Therefore, as Colleen mentioned, politics, as um, Augustine saw it, is incapable of remedying the fundamental human ills. Their cause and cure is ultimately spiritual. So what Augustine says is, yes, participate in building the earthly peace through politics and use it as much as possible to enjoy God, to love God, but know the limit, that politics has a limit, which is coercive and conflict. It does not remedy all the human ills in the society. Thank you, Helen. That is really helpful to think about St. Augustine's advice for how to, how to consider politics as Christians, which is what we've been trying to do. So that's very, very helpful. Okay, let's pray together. Gracious God, we are so grateful for this opportunity to come together and to think deeply about this important issue and to really think about and pray about how we should live as your children here on Earthly City. Uh, I pray that, Lord, that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, will continue to be with us and guide us as we uh, live out our faith, give us boldness, empowerment, um, sense of a mission and goal, to represent you uh, in everything we do and to also uh, the humility to also to learn from each other. So I pray that Lord, uh, your hand will be upon uh, the United States and especially on Tuesday, the election day, 
um, I pray that Lord that uh, election day may go and uh, come and go but the people here will uh, continue to live out, live out the Christian principle that Pastor Colleen laid out for us uh, in faithfulness and in truth and in love so most of all that help us excel in love and loving our loving you and loving our brothers and sisters as our neighbors and so we want to uh, uh, thank you for what you have already done uh, in us and will continue to do and uh, we want to lift up all the political process um, that is coming in uh, to you for your hand, for your providence. And now receive the blessing as we go. As the church, may we honor God with all of our actions and our attitudes and our words and in our voting. And may we remember that we serve the Lord who sits on the throne and to him be glory and honor and praise forever. Amen.